0: to after the bell with your host laura if you like what you hear today please rate and review kindly this show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education if you'd like to know more about me please visit my instagram page at educatingLaura. laura Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about this conversation because I feel as though there is learning in real time between Bailey and myself. As women of different generations, I think that we're able to, although slightly inarticulately at times, and we certainly muddle through some of our conversations, I think you can hear the genuine curiosity and openness between the both of us in learning about each other's journeys and the way each of us, as women of over 10 years apart, See the world and shop in the world, and I am really proud of this conversation because I wasn't necessarily expecting to get out of it what I did, but it was much more profound than what I was expecting. So that's always a really nice and welcome surprise. So I never taught Bailey, although she was at the school that I was at in Year Twelve, and I read many, many of her essays, whether they were practice essays or during the verification process, and I always loved the fact that she came at her viewpoints, opinions, and analyses in a really unique way and I thought that she was really clever and wise and I loved that about reading her work. She came back onto my radar because my friend who did teach her has remained in contact with her and let me know that she has started a conscious fashion brand and I was really interested in that and really interested in her thoughts and opinions about fast fashion and the fashion industry in general and I love what she has to say about her vision for society, her vision for women, her vision for equality as well as her global perspective about the environment and the way we interact with it and the way that we spend our money and where we spend our money. I think she's really insightful. So here it is. Hey, Bailey, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me absolute pleasure so I thought we would start straight away at the beginning and talk about high school a little bit so what were your early high school years like
1: um gosh it feels like so long ago um I think they were good Mm. I was an all-girls school I had um a good group of friends and we were all pretty like academic minded I think most of my friends actually just were really focused on the extracurriculars and I was really academic so we saw each other when we wanted to but we were all pretty focused yeah
0: and what was that school like? Because obviously when I got to know you, it was at a different school. So I don't really know the setting of that school at all. Well, I actually went to three
1: high schools. Um, oh, and so Okay. The- tell me about that. Yeah, I know. A lot. It was a lot. I mean, it was kind of circumstantial. I went to my first, um, I guess, high school. I started there when I was in year five. So I got a scholarship there and it was good. It was all girls school. really enjoyed it. Um, then I got to about year nine and I don't know I went through some personal things and wanted a bit of change my sister was at this really well regarded school and it was co-educational where you have your classes with girls and you socialize with everyone at lunch Mm. um so I changed there in year 10 and then kind of just I don't know I think I just it didn't really click with me in the way that I wanted it to and I probably shouldn't have left the first school, but then thought no, like I can't really go back because mm. then they'd, I, I'd have to pay back my scholarship, and it was something strange. Uh, so okay. Then I went to um the school where I met you, and that was fantastic. I really, really loved it there. Yeah. <laughs> it Were the awesome.
0: first two schools independent or oh they're private? Both yeah. private. Okay. Yeah. Whereas you
1: ended up at the end doing yeah. your final years at a government school. I know, so it's kind of like the inverse of what people usually do, yeah. but it it really worked out for me great. I I mean I'm not sure if I was lucky or whether I don't I think. The school where I met you is such a good public school. Like, I mean, my teachers was just so involved and so fantastic. So and maybe I just got really lucky or maybe the public school system is just a lot better than people wrap it up to be.
0: <laughs> Perhaps you could be right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you believe yeah. your teachers and yeah. peers would have seen you in those seven to 10
1: years? Like, What kind of impression did you feel you gave? I mean, seven to 10, I feel like people change a lot in the years from seven to 10. I think... Probably in year seven, people saw me as a very type A, (laughs) academically minded kid. Um, Probably a bit of a know-it-all, but annoying. And then, I don't know, I think I probably withdrew a little bit in year nine, year 10. You know how Mm -hmm. people change that way. So, um, yeah, I think being at a girls' school was different as well because people were less worried about what the boys are going to think. So, everyone was just a little bit more silly and outgoing and, and such. So. I think that was a good aspect so it was probably a little bit silly but still very academic and
0: <laughs> you know. I would say something similar I went to an all-girls school and I think that I didn't grow up quite as quickly I think I was childish a little longer mm. and I think I had that innocence a little longer so I can completely resonate with that
1: yeah yeah it's such a thing I mean i look at, I changed to a kind of co-ed school in year 10 so I'm, I couldn't really speak to how I would have matured, but then I looked at my friends and they were doing all the same stuff I was once I moved. So I think if I'd stayed there a little bit longer, I probably would have gone to parties with boys and all of that. But when definitely when I was in at the girls' school, it was like from year seven to year nine, no socializing with boys, just girls, just silly like slumber party stuff. Yeah, Yeah, I was I I completely resonate with that. How would you describe (laughs) yourself as a learner? I think I'm a real storyteller, maybe. So I think. I kind of need to know the why of how everything happens in order to understand it. Like, even now with uni, it's kind of someone can describe something to me and I'll be like, yeah, cool, but why? It doesn't make any sense to me until I can understand how it all started and how it all ties together. And then I can create like connect dots in my mind and things like that. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, you don't like to learn things in isolation, it all has to be linked to something greater or something bigger.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think, and I think, and uh, maybe I even fall into the danger of linking things that probably aren't supposed to be linked, just so they have a place in my mind. If that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> like, that completely. If when I hear things on the news, I'm like, oh, maybe that's happening because of this happening, and it probably isn't connected at all. But in my mind, it's all connected. <laughs> it's all just this little spider web. But it creates
0: yeah. the context for you that makes you understand it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or it just makes me re- remember it because it has a purpose in my mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can understand that too.
0: Yeah. what do you believe makes a good teacher you said before that you had some really amazing teachers what was it about those teachers that that you thought was so great
1: I think a really good teacher I, I think pastoral care is such an important thing for a teacher and I think i like I have so much admiration for teachers because it would take so much patience and understanding to get to know every individual person and what they need but I think being a kid and feeling seen and feeling understood and inspired is so important and I was lucky in that respect you know I had Lots of good teachers throughout my schooling. I had a really good teacher in year five who taught me a lot about the environment and social studies and things like that. That very resonate, like resonated with me a lot. But then in year 12, I had uh, in particular an English teacher who, you know, who was Mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. She was like more as a friend, even in a way I'd go and feel like I'm going to like see my good friend. And then, um, You know, I I can think of one instance in particular where it was a Saturday and I was doing exam prep and I did about seven essays and sent them all off and she graded them all within two hours with just like such insightful feedback and she was so encouraging. And it's just, she didn't have to do that. That was her weekend and she still did it. I just thought that was pretty amazing. So yeah, I was very lucky and really all of my teachers in year 12 were just top of their game in their disciplines and just very, they had so much time to give, which you kind of expect sometimes from a private school, but you don't really expect so much from a public school. I don't know. I think because at a private school, uh, the ones I went to, they're told they have to do that. That mm-hmm. Maybe maybe the public school I went to was the same, but it's just very, very impressive.
0: I think it's interesting. I actually tutored at a private school in the area and obviously then worked at the government school. And the big difference I found was in the private school, I mean, the year 12 biology classes had maximum 12 kids. Whereas I had 26 kids in all of my, and I had two year 12 classes at that time. So that was the big difference I found is you just have double the amount of kids in front of you. And so to make them all feel seen, I think that's where the challenge is. I think, you know, teachers are who they are no matter what school they are at. Yeah. We all still, I think, care and and want to do the maximum we can with the students that we have. But I think that, to me, is the biggest challenge is in a government school, having so many more faces and so many more individuals to connect with. That, to me, was a Absolutely. bit more
1: challenging. Yeah. I mean, I haven't found that because that's what you kind of expect from private schools. But my first private school, they had a, a an economist kind of come in and he was a new principal and he started bringing 25 kids into the schools. So that was part of the reason I left because had that logic. Why pay all this money when you're going to have 26 kids in a class when that's what they're offering at public schools and otherwise public schools are just as good. So, mm. yeah, that was kind of a motivation to leave as well. But I found it, the public school that I went to, there weren't actually that many kids in the class and so maybe that was something that they did in VCE. Mm. They narrowed it down. I'm not sure. Maybe I just, maybe I did just get very lucky. Yeah, it could have
0: even just been a timetabling thing. Mm. Depends on how many kids want to do the subject, all of yeah. that. But that's great. That's great that that was the experience
1: yeah. you had. Yeah, yeah, very lucky. Yeah. What do you think about the VCE? Um, oh, I just that. I did something in VC, which I don't think kids will really be doing now, which was um, I did two year 12 classes in year 11, mm. which made it really hellish in year 11 um, to keep up with your foundational coursework while you're putting all of your energy, obviously into your 12 classes, because that's what ultimately matters. But it meant that I kind of fell behind on the things that were really going to matter the next year. So I don't think they'll really do that anymore. But then having said that in my final year, it was easy breezy. I had like four classes, and I finished at one every day. So I did my studies until dinner time, and then just chilled out. So at a very good timetable. But I don't really think that that's as um, common anymore that people do that. You wouldn't have done that at the government school, would you? No, I, I did that at um, the private school I was at beforehand. They were very into. I think they wanted to do it as like a trial run to teach kids what it's like do a year twelve subject. So when they get into year twelve they know what exams are like the stresses the um sacks and things like that so i think if you don't end up doing well in year 11 they go oh that's okay just do five year 12 subjects Mm -hmm. anyway but there is the risk of not focusing on your maths and your english and all those things that are really important um so i think maybe that's why they don't really do that anymore (laughs) fair enough um and what was your load
0: like Mm -hmm. in vc what kind of subject did you do
1: i did three folio subjects which was probably ill-advised i did um design tech and media media was actually really good I think that prepared me a lot for English and then I did art in year 12 and I did legal studies and maths and English and so why
0: do you say it's ill-advised to do folio or that many folio oh it's just it's a
1: lot of work I mean obviously every subject you undertake is a lot of work but just a lot of hours because it's it's not necessarily that the work you're doing is that much harder or mentally taxing it's it's like kind of a break from all the mentally taxing um subjects that you do at school but it's just a lot of hours especially if you want to do it right so it's it's just meant that means that you don't have much time to focus on other things like your other coursework or your friends or so you've come very singularly focused on your folios
0: okay well it's interesting yeah. I never did any folio I have not one creative bone in my body so I'm just interested <laughs> from your perspective how that how that went for you
1: it was probably just me it probably didn't require as much doing and redoing but as I said type a personality probably doesn't actually work that well with folio subjects
0: that would be very challenging to put something that is so creative and so personal out into the world I
1: I can understand the redoing Yeah, there's the creative integrity. Yeah, yeah, you just go, oh, it's not really what I want to say. It's not my best work. So you do it again. You just get all hung up and in a bit of a vortex. And I think the criteria, and I definitely saw this with uni, the criteria is so vague and then you do it and then your teachers kind of find something subjective to critique it and it's just very unclear and there's so much just redoing all the time.
0: I know during VCE that you had a very successful modelling career. So what was that experience like for you to be, at school and sort of be the normal school girl with also the modelling in the background? I mean, I'm not sure I would call it very
1: successful, but I mean, yeah, I was busy doing castings and runways and things like that while in school, which seems kind of odd because I was so academic, but I managed to keep my grades up and I think my parents would have definitely pulled the pin on it if I didn't. It did become, I guess, a bit jarring Like one, you know, you're missing school, so there's lots of catch up. And so a lot of your time goes into coursework and and work, not so much just the normal aspects of school and socialising and things like that. But it was also just jarring in the sense that I'd go to work, I'd interact with people in their 20s, clients in their 30s, things like that. And then I'd come to school and I'd be treated as a kid again. And I think that's kind of something I regret, that I wasn't just present in being a teenager. I was kind of off in my own little world thinking I was somehow an adult when I really wasn't. (laughs) So It would um, be hard not to
0: be in that world though as an adult because surely you're treated that way. And I from my understanding, you know, very young models are also dressed in very adult ways. So it's hard not to buy into that, I I would think.
1: Yeah. Which to be honest, it's really not something I agree with. Like I'm I'm happy that I did it. I think it was fun in a lot of ways. But if my daughter came to me and said, Oh, I want to be a model, I'd say wait till you're eighteen. And it's also it's the academic thing but it's more so just that I don't really agree with 16 year olds selling things to 30 year olds it just it kind of perpetuates this youth culture that I don't really agree with so I mean it was it was fine for my own personal experience but I don't really agree with very young girls modeling in that yep. sense yeah I like that perspective that's an
0: interesting perspective <laughs> why do you think it was okay for you yeah but it wouldn't be okay for your
1: daughter oh uh, look maybe like my kid would be fine. I'm just a hypothetical person. I don't know her. Um, <laughs> but um, I think it was okay for me because I I was really self-motivated and focused on school and um, I had a very close relationship with my mum. And so I just wasn't getting up to anything that she wouldn't know about or, pre- you know, I think I had a very open relationship with my mum. If I was really closed off and. Then- the kid that would kind of sneak out or, you know, blow off school or or whatever, I I don't think she would have a bar of it at all. But somehow there was just like this really um, innate sense of trust with my mum, which is really lucky. So I think it was okay in that sense. But really it seems like a weird concept and I'm not sure. I'm just lucky it turned out okay, I guess.
0: (laughs) I think it's just an interesting analogy you've put out there, that's all, because I think we do put ourselves in positions that are sometimes precarious and sometimes, as you say, ill-advised in ways And yet if we were to put other people that we care about in those positions, we wouldn't be quite as comfortable. I think it's interesting you put it that way.
1: Or it kind of becomes like a case-by-case basis, I guess. You know, like it really just depends on the individual. I'm not sure. And I was really interested in fashion. My mum knew that and my mum kind of knew what angle I was coming at it from. And so, yeah, I don't know. It is an interesting one.
0: (laughs) I'm posing no judgment to your mum. It's not about that. I just think it's an interesting, yeah, just an interesting situation.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think I think it also helped me mature in a lot of ways in terms of like, you know, acquired good foreign manner of just from having to talk to my agent all the time on the phone and she was very grown up and, and, and things like that. I was quite like shy in some ways and then I kind of had to grow up, which maybe even helped me with VC in a way, like school of life, that kind of logic where um, maybe forcing yourself to grow up a bit quicker makes you um, a little bit more prepared for challenges that you you're faced with later so who knows absolutely yeah
0: it's just (laughs) it's an interesting situation as I said I was not a model at school (laughs) and I find I find that whole industry fascinating to be honest um I'm less judgmental about it more fascinated yeah yeah
1: Well, I mean yeah it's got its ups
0: and downs let's just say that yeah Uh so speaking on, on this train obviously you are physically very attractive by mainstream standards, you know, being being a model and accepted in that sort of industry. What are the impacts has that had on you? And are there any stereotypes about that and about that industry and about being attractive that you would like to
1: dispel in any way? I mean, I think that's like the most important thing that you pointed out there was like by mainstream standards, because I mean, I really think that construct uh, beauty is a construct and it's a pretty messed up construct as we've kind of learned and it's very reductive and limiting in a lot of ways so I don't really agree with it um I'd say that kind of being blonde and you know quote-unquote a model in high school I think and even in life it attracts undeserved attention in all different types of ways negative and positive I'd say sometimes I got positive attention I didn't deserve or I got negative attention that I didn't really deserve you know I got I fulfilled a stereotype that people resented so therefore they may have resented me it's all just speculation um but yeah I think it, it can be problematic. But then I also think I am a woman of privilege. So I, I also have to acknowledge that there are elements of my life that probably maybe are unfair and that I'm unconscious to. Yeah. yeah, absolutely.
0: I think that's a really insightful answer. And I think that this year of all the years is really bringing to light the privilege that we accept without question. That's what absolutely. I so
1: much this year. Which has been an incredible um, learning experience because I think it's just shown us that how many things that we've been blind to um, wittingly and unwittingly and um, how much education we really have to do in order to do our part to make things better. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, this is getting deep, Bailey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it really is, isn't it? <laughs> so for you, as, as we've identified the idea of mainstream beauty, what is it that you feel and you see as beautiful and attractive?
1: Ooh, that's a loaded one because I think there are so many. It's, it's kind of like what should be beautiful and what should be attractive and what we're conditioned to think is beautiful, what we're conditioned to think is attractive. It's really hard. I think obviously there's definitely an aesthetic part of beauty, but I also think it's the way that people carry themselves, the the way that they, um, they're um kind of fashion oriented. So this is probably maybe other people don't agree with this, but people's style, I think, is really attractive, the way that they have... It's almost like a self-reflective thing that they go. This is my best features. This is how I express myself. This is, you know, kind of my aesthetic, and I find that very attractive. But really, I think when you get down to it, I think you know the aesthetic part of someone's attractiveness can kind of the shine can wear off that really quick. And when you what you're left with is how intelligent are they? Do they make me laugh? And um, you know, did like do they have a sunny personality? Things like that I think are, have the most longevity. Yeah. And it would be nice to see more of that out there and celebrated. I'd absolutely say, yeah. and I think,
0: as you say, at the end of the day, the facade that we're presented is only new and shiny for a short time. You know? Yeah, and the left how that person yeah. makes you feel and is do they make you feel attractive in yourself? I think that's very attractive to to yeah. be made to feel that way by somebody else in oh, someone's it's a presence. Thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So what does success look yeah. like to you? Well, I was raised by a bit of a feminist. And so as a kid, because she had, I mean, my mom had two daughters. And so we were always taught that independence was the hallmark of success. Yeah. And I think I've really clung on to that. Like, as I think um, as women, we're kind of coerced into codependence, guided into that really um, easily. And so to be successful, to do something that you love, obviously, but that you can stand alone and not only support yourself but help the people around you, that to me would be success. Yeah, I love that. And so your mum, you feel, has been the biggest influence of that opinion? Oh, yeah. I think my mum introduced me to a lot of concepts from a young age and then because I you know, kind of cultivated an interest in that, then I looked for it elsewhere and, and agreed under my own steam. But, yeah, definitely at a young age, you know, it was the 90s, my mum was like, no baby born dolls no like you know conforming to traditional gender roles no you can't have an ironing board for your doll what is this so she she actually bought me tonka trucks to play with and then I ended up making the tonka trucks get married and she was like well she's just her she's a girly girl (laughs) that's her truth you know I can't I can't make her any more of a tomboy that's just her it's so funny though because I was
0: exactly the same I never bought I've got a daughter and a son and I never bought traditional gendered toys ever And so I would have books and puzzles and all of that kind of stuff. And um, my daughter would bring babies home from other people's houses. Obviously, she's seeking it out in a way. That's what I mean. It's really interesting that I didn't present them. And so it is funny that children, I think, do instinctively have some kind of connection to things. Somehow.
1: Yeah. And and I think it's it's kind of fair enough if that's what the kid wants to do. I mean, if, if it was a little boy and he wanted a baby born, everyone would be really happy with that as well. I think it's, you know, it's hard to deny a kid what they want just because you don't want to feel like you're pushing them into a particular role. I mean, yeah, I had my baby borns in the end because I really wanted them. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm still, <laughs> my ultimate goal isn't to have a husband. So it's all fine. <laughs>
0: Your mum's still one. Your mum's still one in that regard then. Yeah. <laughs> You won that race, yeah. (laughs) I like that. But I think, as you say, like it's more about letting the child lead you than saying, this is what you must play with because this is the gender or this is the way you need to show up in society. To me, that's
1: important. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I think you've done the right thing there.
0: Well, it sounds like that's what your mum did too. And I love that. I love in the 90s. I'm an 80s baby, and I don't know if we were quite, parents were quite so liberal. I like it that your mum was.
1: Yeah, well, my mom was also, you know, 26 when she had me. She's 22 when she had her first baby, so she was, like, a really young kind of Naomi Wolf reading lady, yeah, mother, yeah. So what is your relationship to the
0: media, considering you were kind of in that sort of fashion world for a little while, including social media? Obviously, with all of that kind of, that industry, social media tends to be quite important. Mm.
1: I mean yeah I I've actually like interned in the media a lot like um I interned at Vogue and Fashion Journal which is a publication we have in Melbourne and so I've worked in the media a little bit and then definitely with social media I have my own personal Instagram account which I kind of created because I knew um, that to get a job in fashion it definitely helped having an Instagram following so I started working on that while I was at uni and now I just kind of do it for fun Um, but I mean I I really enjoy social media because I think if I even check in with my friends less on social media I'm more likely to give them a call or have a chat with them it's more just that there's this community of people that I otherwise wouldn't come across that inspiring me and then I've even you know cultivated friendships with which is great so I love social media in that respect bringing people together and it's just a bit of fun but I think if I was being raised in this social media era, I I just don't know how it would have affected me I I never had to deal with it I didn't have Facebook till I was like 15 years old MSN was hard enough I mean I can't imagine having Instagram at the age of nine I mean I was on MSN Mm -hmm. all the time and as soon as like a boy I liked popped on I was like hey how's it going and you know it's just it's just so much freedom (laughs) to have as a kid just to make a complete idiot out of yourself if like at the very least so um yeah I don't know how I would deal with that and also just the the beauty standards and the comparison and all of those things um how I would have dealt with that as a kid that could have been pretty detrimental in a couple of ways so yeah it is difficult
0: so how is it that you create boundaries for yourself now in regards to
1: that sort of stuff I mean, I don't think I, I don't think I really do, which is something that I probably need to think more about. I think I kind of just treat it as a hobby in a way. And mm. yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a bit fun for me. I don't really think I have boundaries, but I think I should really start thinking about it. If I, if I'm being truly honest, especially like, you know, if I had kids and things like that, I'd want to create boundaries. I don't sit on my phone and I don't spend a whole lot of time on it. So I, I think mm. I kind of think like, uh, oh, every night or every second night I might post something and then I kind of put my phone down. So I wouldn't say I'm addicted to my phone but then i have to worry about the image that i'm putting out there more i think i see that
0: well i'm thinking too the boundary that i can see is is you seeing it for what it is right like not buying into it i think that in itself is a boundary is to understand that it is a projection and a version rather than the truth i think even understanding that absolutely creates a boundary i mean it
1: can be hard Mm. It can be hard. You can be following someone and they're traveling all year round and they look like they have the best life. And I think it does get hard sometimes if, you know, even COVID, I've got friends who are still traveling around Europe and it's difficult to kind of stomach that sometimes. I think if you just see it for what it is, you know.
0: It's even harder for Victorians it's because done. we are literally the only ones in this situation, and it's just shameful.
1: <laughs> right? I, know. I can't even. I can't even talk about it. I think, especially like my sister's a doctor, and she's working in the, the northern area, and so I mean, it's hit really hard. It's kind of she's been incredibly unlucky in that sense that of all the states to work in and all the parts of the state to work in she's working in a really hard-hit area but that's really stressful for her as well so i think we're all a bit like which is very disappointed in victoria right now (laughs) just wishing it wasn't that this way (laughs) the nation's naughty corner
0: yes and i love being from melbourne i really love being from melbourne but at the moment i'm not saying too much about it
1: there's a real stigma there's a real stigma against it right now (laughs) just like (laughs) tell people i'm from melbourne they're like it's like we've got cooties
0: or something It's bad. it's not
1: cool (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah we do have Yeah, oh, um, <laughs>
0: so so you have your own clothing brand that you are running with your mum how did that all come about
1: well I got fired oh. um no it's not it's not really that cut and dry I <laughs> finished uni and it's always something I've wanted to do especially a sustainable slow fashion brand and so I was kind of working on it on the side with my mum and I was planning on launching it anyway but it just so happened I got fired and I launched it the next day um it was I'm saying fired for dramatic effect I mean, it was made redundant during covid but really okay. i got fired and um, so it was just you know something to put my energy in. i didn't want to just kind of be sitting around doing nothing so um yeah i just had to put my energy into that and yeah my mum's along for the ride she's well not along for the ride she is very much probably she's more than half of it at this point even because i'm studying so she does a lot of the sewing but we do the conceptualization and the designing and the instagram wow. all that so that's together. recent yeah. then yeah very recent yeah, like a wow. April. And so what were you doing at uni before this? Mm. Oh, well, I was, yeah, so I studied fashion design. Um, I did a Bachelor in Honours at RMIT and that was the course I've wanted to do since I was 14. So, um, and I did it and then, yeah, there were ups and downs. It wasn't quite what I had in mind, but, you know, I'll you can talk about that later. Um, so I did fashion design and then, the Day I graduated, I got offered a job in a head office for a popular fashion brand. I was like, woohoo, this is great! And it was very different from what I was expecting. It's not nearly as glamorous as hmm. you anticipate. And then, yeah, I was just unlucky like, last person in, first person out with COVID. And then here we are.
0: You infer the ups and downs of that uni course. So, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah.
1: So, as I said, I, I Wanted to do this course ever since I was 14, and worked very hard at doing it, which is why I did all those folio subjects. And I got in, which was great. And then it was really different from what I was expecting. It was kind of—it's a very conceptual course, and I was always really rooted in ready-to-wear. Um, and I think people kind of summed me up as a bit of a Barbie doll, which really broke my heart over and over again. And I um even there was a group chat made about me and how much they hated me, which was difficult. Yeah, which is—it was just difficult to based on what, based
0: on how you looked, or based on what you wanted to do in fashion
1: i'm not quite sure i'm wondering whether i did a presentation because my thesis was on um how men get a lot of advantages in the fashion industry and two of i feel like it was kind of started by two guys in the course um so thus they were kind of just proving my point really um but (laughs) i yeah so i just it was kind of just disappointing to learn that people don't really change that uni is kind of quite high school I think people are just disappointing sometimes doesn't matter and if you're in an institution you're going to come across disappointing people Mm -hmm. yeah so that was really hard and I felt like as I said it was really um subjective and you could do something and put your heart into it and they could give you a very vague brief and you'd spend hours on it and then they could just tear it down just because they didn't like it or what have you and then I got into like I graduated and I got into the fashion industry and I realized that there aren't that many jobs and there are like a hundred kids just at RMIT graduating every year and then you know, who knows how many people across the country and in the world are graduating from fashion design. And it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's a really profitable industry, but there aren't that many jobs. So that was a bit of a wake up call. Yeah. And I wonder too,
0: especially right now, I mean, we're seeing the fashion industry taking a hit that they've never taken. You know, I saw in the paper the other day that Chanel have had to close a number of stores to see that taking a hit too. I'm wondering how you see the future of
1: fashion moving forward. What do you think it's going to look like? Oh, it's really sad, honestly. I mean, I think change definitely needed to be made in fashion. And that was also another problem that I had when I was studying is that, you know, as you mature, you kind of maybe develop more of a social conscience or just more of a... An awareness for things that are happening outside your little bubble and I realized that it's a really really dirty industry and I, I didn't make me want to give up on the industry because I thought if everyone leaves it you know the people who want to create change you know they're the people that need to stay so I thought um oh, you know maybe I can help a little bit or who knows but I think hopefully yeah. with COVID things might change. But definitely like I think was it eleven print magazines in Australia have stopped print since COVID. Um, as you said, you know, Chanel, the closing stores. I think it's, you know, even I'm unemployed right now, so you'd be looking on seek for a job and there just aren't really that many jobs out there. <laughs> so um yeah. it I'm not to answer your question, I'm not quite sure. I mean, we've seen recessions before. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this before. So um it no. will be hard to see. Maybe there'll be a new wave of lots of small-scale brands instead of a couple of, you know, monopolising fast fashion brands and, and, and luxury brands. I think the luxury brands will probably always stay, I hope, um, just mm. more historically mm. and, and just in a sense of nostalgia. I would hate to see them go. But, yeah, I think hopefully there is a change in a broader sense.
0: So what is your thought on those
1: f- sort of fast fashion or the idea of fast fashion? Oh, they're bad. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's so bad. I, it's it's so, so bad. I think, I mean, we've developed this culture where, Things are made quickly and cheaply and then they deteriorate quickly and then we throw it out and we're on to the next thing because it costs $20 to replace. But we're not thinking about the years and years and all the resources that we've taken and how many years it's going to take to break down. And it's just this really, really bad cycle. And also, I mean, now people expect clothing to cost a certain amount. And so if you want to try and change the system, it's it's really difficult to do things right. I mean, back in the olden days, people were pretty much married and buried in the same outfit. They would invest in one great piece of clothing, and that was their like Sunday best dress. And, and it's not like I'm saying that we need to go that far. Like It's good that we have self-expression, and that's obviously something I love about fashion. But it's, it's definitely a problem. I mean, if you look at what's happened in Uzbekistan from cotton production, it's pretty much dried the country up, and even the pesticides, because it was such a dry climate then, and all the wind was blowing pesticides from, you know, the cotton farms into people's homes and people were getting cancer. Or if you look at how indigo dying is, you know, the polluting all the water and the water wastage and the chemicals and the waste. And it's just, I think it's second to agriculture in water wastage or water pollution. And it's second to oil wow. in just in uh, mis- misuse of um, resources. So it's definitely a very problematic industry. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it's it's so funny because obviously in planning this episode we had a bit of a discussion about the fact that I'm getting or I'm having a lot of thoughts about things that I'm now starting to really consider where that's come from, and I do feel like for me the idea of spending an exorbitant amount of money on clothing seems wasteful, right? Like Mm. that's my my initial thought. Like why would I spend that kind of money on a top or whatever? But the lack of knowledge I clearly have about where that top's come from and the impact it's having and, as you say, the fact that if I buy something that it isn't expensive, then I have less reason to take as good a care of it if I mm. had invested. Or have
1: it mended. Or, yes. Yeah. I'm really interested in this because I've never considered it before. I, look, and I think that's a fair standpoint to be at. I think there is a real lack of knowledge and no judgment. I mean, it's, it's a constructed system that, everyone is buying into i mean even even me like i have things in my closet that i bought from fast fashion brands and you know i'm definitely trying to make a change but also i'm not going to stop wearing them either because that's also contributing to the issue so i think you can stop buying them but ultimately if you just start throwing out all the things that are you know from problematic brands are also just contributing to the issue in a different way so um it is something that we have to start thinking about as well but you know, you look at t-shirts for a hundred dollars and it does like, it makes me kind of, t- it takes my breath away sometimes. Um, Especially yeah. when you don't have that much money. But I think when you really think about, I mean, cause I sew clothing, I know how long it takes, how expensive, um, well-resourced fabric, it, you know, is and, and I start to do the math and I go, wow, you really can't get an ethical t-shirt below a hundred dollars if you really do the math. Right. So, but it's also our culture of, you have to wear everything once and, or, you know, I think it's, on average, you wear something seven times before you completely give up on it. And that's a little bit messed up as well because people kind of go, oh, haven't I seen you wear that before? And it's just, especially now with Instagram, you wear something, it's photographed, oh, I can't wear that again because the whole world has seen this me in this. So... It's like the whole outfit repeating stigma is also a real problem. I think for this particular well, issue. Well, I think
0: that that has to be changed. In I believe in like the celebrity culture. I think that that needs yeah. to shift. You need to. You know who I do love actually is what's her name? Um, this is embarrassing when I say her name because she's super famous. Uh, Kate Middleton. <laughs>
1: mm. <laughs> I love Who's her. that girl? But, I swear <laughs> I've seen her before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I think she's often. Recycling and reusing, and the papers yeah. pull her up on it all the time. All those shoes she wore those last season, all this that you know, but that should be celebrated, right? And I love that. I love that. I think good on you yeah. for actually wearing a pair of shoes. Who wants to wear a pair of shoes one time? That's the worst time you wear them, right? Like, you want to wear, I know, them. Exactly. wear them one time. That's crazy. So, I'm yeah, I, give them a break, but yeah. So I, And I do think that we yeah. do put a lot of – we do look up a lot rather than looking within. I think that's a lot of – that's mm. all about – I think that's a big
1: issue. Yeah. And, I mean, celebrities really are modelling the, the – oh, yeah, I mean, it's such a hard thing when you're in a consumerist and capitalist society because yeah. a lot of these people are gifted things you know that brand I was working for they were very popular and they they had ambassadors and they would gift or um lend things to. so sometimes even they might just be wearing something for a post but they're not even keeping it and they're giving it back to the showroom so to them they're thinking well my closet isn't even that big and I and I didn't even hold on to it I gave it back so I'm not you know contributing to an issue but they are because your average person looking at that photo won't know that they're not holding on to that or that they didn't buy it or and you know if such and such I'm not gonna name any names because I don't want to be like yeah, finger pointing to a celebrity, but um, such and such, you know, wears all of these different outfits all the time. I too, I have to wear all these outfits all the time. Yeah, and also I was um, we're getting very off topic. Sorry, but I, you know, I was um, no, it's a good <laughs> listening to this podcast and this influencer. She's got, I think, almost a million followers, but she has a really interesting podcast, and she's very um, sustainability minded. But she said that if she posts something you know, a photo of her in a dress that she's worn before, it will get about half the likes. And so she's like, it's really difficult for me because I want to encourage people to outfit repeat. But obviously no one wants to see an, an outfit repeat, which is, so I'm trying to do my bit, but then my audience also has to do their bit and really think about the psychology behind that. Why are they so against seeing something for a second time?
0: Yeah. Mm. Mm. And I think that's, almost coming back to that idea that we were talking about before is we like the shiny and the new. We really
1: like it. Yeah. Yeah. Quite superficial, aren't we?
0: Well, it takes time to get beyond that. And Instagram is very quick, quick, quick. So do we have the patience and the willingness, I suppose, to get beyond the picture? And I mean, ultimately, Instagram doesn't even allow that. So it's nice that this Mm -hmm. Influencer has a podcast in which you can actually
1: start to listen and understand the philosophy, you know? Yeah, using different avenues to get a point across if it's obviously not working on that that avenue. Yeah. That's really interesting too.
0: So tell me about why you started your brand, what it is you want to achieve through this brand and what the brand's name is so we can find it.
1: Okay. Well, it's called Journey the Label. And basically i've always kind of wanted to do something with my mom as i said we're very close and she taught me how to sew she's a fantastic sewer and she's got great style and so it just made sense for us to do it together um the reason it's mum, my mom has been making clothes for me since i don't know i was like 13 so it's been really normal for me to have a very homemade wardrobe and I think I didn't realize how much I like relied on those pieces to style my outfit or like I just really took it for granted I thought oh who would want homemade clothing you know but then I realized it's actually something that probably people would love and and they just if you don't know how to sew how are you gonna get it Mm -hmm. and then we also thought you know this is actually the time maybe even if before Homemade had a bad connotation, um, like in the nineties, like because off the rack was kind of just a new thing. It's it's actually something that people are really cherishing now. So we thought, okay, if we're gonna do it, this is the time. And so now we kind of just make made to order clothing out of found fabric. So upcycling, sometimes we'll cut things up and upcycle it, or sometimes we'll find old bedspreads or tablecloths or curtains and and take take them and make them into something people can wear. So it's got like a really upholstery slant sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> look like a couch cover um and and then we'll have (laughs) the odd thing that looks well I think Kim Kardashian uh, did that really well didn't she in that Met Gala oh yeah yeah exactly well it's becoming quite a thing I think really we want to look like uh an interior piece in an old Italian woman's apartment well that's my like ambition anyway Yeah. like a plastic covered gingham floral dress yeah something like that would be great the most
0: amazing image Bailey I love that so much yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, you're welcome. <laughs> so, in terms of obviously your a pulse, you're, sorry, you're reappropriating. Is that the right word, or not really recycling?
1: Yeah, upcycling, yeah, upcycling, you know, yeah, reappropriating works too. Yeah. Um. So
0: does it yeah. mean that each piece is very unique or do you have like a piece that you kind of make similarly with different fabrics or how does that kind of work?
1: Yeah, kind of latter, but it is actually a really interesting design te- technique to get a piece of fabric and go, oh, maybe this would suit this. And then you sometimes get these great designs that you just wouldn't have thought of otherwise, but you just had this fabric that maybe you wouldn't even have thought existed or would work with clothing or, something like that so usually it is just we have like a range of styles and we redo the popular ones in um similar but slightly different fabric so it can kind of be a little bit Uh, difficult sometimes we have to shoot a lot of the pieces sometimes on me in order to show oh now we have this in this colorway um but we're trying to foster a system where it's more commissioned you know we have our styles and then if someone likes it they can dm us and say oh i really like this dress and we can say oh we have these fabrics do you like any of these so but i mean everyone's really used to browsing picking their size and and putting it to the shopping bag and having it delivered delivered in a couple of days so it's really just part of the slow fashion process and hopefully it's going to become a little bit more routine and less like whoa this is weird
0: I think too at the moment considering we have nowhere to go we're not no, exactly we're not, we're not so much. pressed or, or we're not we don't have an event we don't need it by Saturday we don't need it you know yesterday mm. so I do think you're right in that this is the time to launch because why not have that bespoke piece that you can wear when COVID's over in 2022 you know like, like
1: yeah. Why not? Why not um, invest now? I thought coffee sleeves are still in fashion. <laughs> I mean that's the thing though like I, I mean look we're, we're getting some some people obviously they're still able to socialize like even Western Australia or even New South Wales or overseas Um, so it's not too bad but I mean it is difficult it's good in the sense to kind of do the groundwork and get people familiar with your brand right now but then in terms of creating something scalable or profitable it is it's difficult in a recession let's be honest recessions are hard yeah, absolutely Absolutely.
0: So what's the process for you then? So is it designing or is it getting the material first? How are you, are you sewing? Is your mum
1: sewing? What's the turnaround? How does the whole process look? Um, it's a bit of both. So, I mean, I can sew and I do sew, but my mum is just so much quicker and better at it because she's got like 20 years experience on me. So she does a lot of the sewing. We kind of, sometimes she'll come up with an idea. Sometimes I'll come up with an idea. Sometimes we'll have a piece of fabric and brainstorm it together. It's really kind of ad hoc. And we just, even now we kind of just go, I go, I want to make this, like, I think this will be cool just because I want to wear it. And then we go, hey, if it gets a good response, let's sell it. So it's right now just a very easy breezy business model. It's kind of more of like a side thing at the moment. Um, It would be great if it could take off, but then it's hard to create something really profitable and dependable that is slow fashion. Um, Unfortunately, fast, unethical fashion is a lot more profitable and make a lot of money doing it. So... It's um, yeah. if you want to do the right thing, you kind of you kind of got to take that fact that you're not going to become a millionaire doing it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And as I said, look, as a consumer, I think it's an interesting conversation for me to have, obviously. And I do, I've become so much more aware in the last few years how my money is ultimately where I can, is ultimately where I have power. Right. Where I put my money is powerful. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I hadn't really thought about much before but you know it, it is you know where i choose to put my money in terms of food in fashion in you know where I, if like what bank i use all of those things that's where my power comes from really yeah, even um, though i mean like a,
1: yeah, I think it's showing like a power in the people and even, you know, with the BLM movement, it's, you know, support businesses owned by, you know, black professionals and, and, and things like that, that, you know, we kind of go, oh, I don't really have enough money to donate. It's like, well, then, you know, buy something that you otherwise would buy here. Yeah. And it just does show that we have so much more um, power in those kind of areas than we than we thought. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So it's interesting. I was mentioning this to you before. So you put up an IGTV today with your new denim <laughs> yeah. top. Yeah. And I loved it but the first thought in my mind was I wish I could wear that and I was having this sort of little chat with you today about the fact that that's problematic in itself. Like why do I wish I could wear that? Why do I want to be uncomfortable in something to look a certain way or whatever? How do you want to make your client feel? And I don't mean that in a a negative way. Obviously your clothing is beautiful and some of the things are beautiful but some of the things are very high fashion that I, you know, as a young mum at home – probably couldn't wear. So what is it that you're trying to go for with your fashion label?
1: I mean, I think it's interesting that I mean, I think in a way I can't get my head around why you wouldn't think that you could wear those things. I mean, but maybe that's just coming from my biased perception because I'm like I feel great in these things, why wouldn't you feel great in these things and you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um I mean, it look it really depends. I think I, I think Definitely, our piece is probably slant to a younger audience, which um, maybe that's just because of my age group and what I feel comfortable wearing. And maybe if I was in my 30s designing, I would design different kind of things. But I mean, some things are high neck, some like, I mean, that denim top is very plunging. But I think it's it's interesting because I think the designs are pretty curated to what I've decided works for me, which might be an issue. But then mm. I also think growing up, I mean, I had zero boobs. And, and growing up, it was like, oh, you, do, you have to be have boobs to be sexy. And, and so I kind of went, oh, I'm just going to wear the things that maybe girls with really big boobs couldn't wear or that I can get away with, like maybe something really high necked or something really plunging and just kind of taking a space of my own and going, this is something that is a little whimsical or <laughs> chic or, or whatever. So um, I think I haven't really thought too much about that. And, and maybe it's a problem that I'm basing it too much on my body type and what I feel comfortable in because... There's already a lot in fashion that's kind of, you know, um, skewed to my body type. But um, I suppose I don't really see much of an issue with me crafting things that I feel good in. But maybe it is an issue if there's not enough diversity. And- Around to make it an even playing field, if that makes sense.
0: I think it was more it was more a problem, I think, for me. In that do you not know, only because where did that thought come from? Right. Which is then why then I wanted to have this conversation with you about beauty and fashion and all of that kind of stuff. Because I've still, as you know, a woman in my thirties had two children, you know, my body's done some pretty great things. I still have that little thing in my head that goes I'd like to look more like that or I'd like to be able to wear that and look like that. And so I'm wondering, I'm, look, I'm really <laughs> I'm really trying to figure out what I'm trying to say here, Bailey, because it's not a criticism, as I no. said. It's more an exploration. And what I think is interesting is that you've gone in a similar way in that, well, I was told in order to be sexy or beautiful, I have to have this. Yeah. And so in a way, I almost think that we're coming from a similar place. Yeah, absolutely. But landing in a different <laughs> – yeah. you know what I mean? We're so weathering I, the same storm so but can, we're in
1: different so boats, you know, something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, we're just – you know what? Well, we're just in different bodies. Yeah. That's it. But we are. I think we are because you were told for such a long time that to be sexy or attractive or womanly you have to have X, Y, Z.
1: And, you know, as a five foot four. <laughs> Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly is exactly what I wanted when I was growing up. I wanted to be, like, cute and petite, you know, <laughs> like not gangly and six foot, you know.
0: <laughs> so, so this is the whole point, and this is what I'm trying to deconstruct now just in this conversation, is that we can both see, I look, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but we can all see beauty in each other, right? We can always, mm. and as you say, like, why couldn't yeah. you wear that? Perhaps I'm more critical than I should be, and perhaps I should be more accepting of What it is that I embody. But I think that the fashion industry does provide some of those
1: triggers for us um, in many ways. Completely. Mm. Completely. And I I think also the the thing, I mean, this is the issue I take with it and it might be completely different from you, but the whole notion of sexualization in in what a woman wears, I think it's like certain areas of a woman's body is like triggering of, you know, like arousal or something. And it's kind of like the proverbial tree in the forest. You know, if if you're not dressing to arouse someone, then is it really sexualized or are you just owning your body and all of Mm -hmm. the beauty of it? You know, a a guy can walk around a park and show his nipples and but a woman can't I and mean, I'm not saying that I want to but I want to have the option you know so mm-hmm. i think when i wear things i'm i'm trying to demystify a woman's body yeah and make you know cuz if it was too shrouded in mystery and you know it would almost seem like forbidden or like that was kind of it's like bad but if you kind of are a little bit more upfront with oh you know show more of this and show more of that it's less in order to get a certain amount of attention it's more to make it a little bit more normal for a girl to dress in a certain way without being objectified, if that makes sense. Yeah, it
0: totally makes sense. And I wish I could say that I was at that place because I would love to be at that place. Right. Right. Like I think. That's so
1: interesting. Yeah.
0: Look, and I mean, look, I'm also a teacher and an educator. And I think that we are like our presentation is very important you know you don't want to be the teacher over the desk and has cleavage out or you know it's there you know especially teaching in a co-ed school or a boys school when there are young boys that are conditioned in a certain ways to see women in a certain way so there's all of those i mean there's so many flaws in our society it's not even funny but
1: Oh, I mean, like, there's an era of, you know, professionalism in any context, definitely when you're dealing with minors, but also just, you know, if I'm in a, a certain setting, you, it's, you know, you cover off and, and things like that. So yeah. definitely there's a time and a place. Yeah, yeah. But also, like, being in your early 20s, I think you, you've got such little responsibility. And so probably in the next 10 years, I might have a huge style transformation, depending on what kind of job I'm in. But also, because I work in fashion, I think a little, it's a little bit more anything goes. Yeah, <laughs> No one's really shocked yeah so yeah I guess maybe that's just like the I'm in from a very different standpoint where I kind of have always felt um you know being a little bit more adventurous in those ways has always been cultivated in a really positive light rather than you know condemned in a way you know
0: but I like that and I think that I would love my children to grow up in a world where they could express themselves honestly authentically rather than feeling that they had to dress to protect themselves I don't want to. I don't really want yeah. to be in that world. So I like that. That's obviously cultivated from your mum and from that relationship you've had with her.
1: Mm. Yeah. No. I mean, I think it's. I think it's good. But I mean, look. There's an element of. I think the culture has really changed because I remember mm-hmm. even five years ago being out with a friend and she told me that someone had just a, a woman had just like accosted her and said I can see your bra through that top and you know you're really asking for a certain amount of attention and wow that was only five years ago and and that really shocks me to think that someone did that and maybe people are still acting that way and I've just been lucky enough to not have to come into contact with it but I also just think maybe the tides have kind of changed so when your kids are older who knows what will be yeah. acceptable maybe we'll do a real swing and everyone will be very covered up you know you just never know yeah that's it It's nice modest fashion really coming in too. yeah to me it's a
0: interesting analysis of society and as i said i hold no emotion Mm. with my thought process but i am very interested in what's coming up especially when it comes to passion yeah
1: Yeah. because obviously we've we've been hardwired without absolutely knowing about it you know so kind of want to explore that
0: yeah Yeah. i thought bailey's coming on i'm going to talk to bailey all about it she'll have some really amazing things to say and you have so thank you (laughs) (laughs) oh honestly (laughs) Who knows? So we were also talking about the fact that you are in the midst of a potential career
1: change. So what's going on for you? So I'm actually doing data science now. Um, I'm doing my post-grad certificate in data science, then I'll move on to my master's. So it's very different in a way, like seems left to field, but it's also really similar because I can still work in fashion. Basically, my data is in everything. It's basically just information. So it opens up a whole spectrum of industries I could work in like health and education and, um, you know, even environmental stuff, like we're talking about data is huge for that to try and um, hone in exactly how many resources you need of something or except all of that. So um, yeah, it's, it's different, but it's also, I'm, I'm really loving it. And it's nice to do something academic after doing something creative for so long.
0: Did you feel that you weren't as stimulated academically in the fashion course?
1: I mean, I, th- I I do believe that you can make anything as academic as you want to make it. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time doing fashion studies and theoretical work and did my thesis. And oh, that was very... In- intellectually stimulating I'm almost ashamed to say that I feel as though maybe I wasn't taken very seriously doing fashion or that okay yeah and 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 that's not my reason for doing it honestly it is just that I I can sense that there are less fashion jobs out there and so like if I get a fashion job all very well and good but I do want to upskill and have a b-plan or something that I can use to my advantage to get to a certain position. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it does feel liberating to kind of do something that might be appreciated in a different way than fashion is. And I haven't really experienced any negative feedback from someone that I'm doing fashion. I mean, there's an there's the odd person that will be like, oh, fashion isn't that a little bit superficial and vacuous. But ultimately, people are really encouraging about it. It's more just for me that I feel like I've always really loved learning and being academic, and I that's just the side of myself that I haven't really tapped into for a while. So
0: And so why this? Why this call? There's lots of academic (laughs) courses out there.
1: Why data analysis? Is that what it is? A data analysis? I mean, it's got many, it's a a horse of many different colours. People call it whatever they want. Um, There's also machine learning, all that kind of stuff. But Mm -hmm. I have a couple of friends and they do computer science and I am so interested when they talk about computer science, I just could listen to it all day long. And I think I was like, oh, you know, I'm really excited about hearing about it. And then I kind of just came to the realisation that I can do it by myself if I want to and I've really loved um, building websites and doing those kinds of things. And so I thought, you know what, I've always wanted to code. I want to do a course that involves coding. And then data is something that you can bring into fashion in many different ways. And yeah, I think I just, do you know, I actually decided a week before starting the course that I was going to do it. It was very quick, but I'm happy I did it. <laughs>
0: We always have a good gut feeling about things, which I think is oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had that a little. I'm a bit, I'm a, I'm a bit too much in my brain. So I can't, I love, I'd love to have a bit more of a gut intuitive uh, I am feeling. Up, I'm, I am up in my head a
1: lot as well. Um, right. it's just, I think just because of COVID I was sitting around. I mean, I had the brand, but there was also a lot of unaccounted units of time. So I thought I should at least be doing something else <laughs> and uh, I could do oh. this online. So. <laughs> On yeah, well, it's great. <laughs> it's a fantastic thing to do during COVID. <laughs> And this is like this is a yeah. benefit. I mean, COVID is so horrible, but I think I think it's going to shake things up and make us kind of I don't know, endeavor to do more. So that's one good thing about it.
0: And What is your current goal now? Uh, like professionally, whatever it could be, personal, professional, anything that seems clear to you right now. A goal
1: that's clear to you. Hmm. Well, I feel a little aimless. Like I'm I'm going to be honest because I think it's important for people to know that when you finish university, you feel very aimless. It's mm-hmm. a really tough your post-grad especially you know when that's confounded by COVID as well Mm. but long term I think just what I said about being independent and I mean standing on your own two feet and putting energy into people who are really important to you I think I've spent a lot of time like the past years focusing so much on uni work and and all of these things and not enough time on my friends and I think that's another thing with COVID where I've gone I've really taken socializing and being around people for granted. So definitely, my goals are to finish this course, spend more time with my friends, and yeah. just see where it goes. I would really love to go into a company and like work my way up, but I don't really know what company or in what capacity. Yeah, I just want to start with the ground and work my way up.
0: Yeah, but you know what, that company might not even be a thing yet. That's the th- that's the way that the world is evolving and changing and shifting so rapidly. That company that you work your way up might not might be in development right now.
1: Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it'll be my company. Yeah. You know, but you never know. So yeah. um, I think. Yeah. Recently, I've had this really misguided notion that life is very predictable. You know, life's just like it's just going to keep going in the same momentum that it's been going for a while, and then it's been a real wake-up call that you know I don't know where I was the day that people taught me, like taught the class that when you make plans, God laughs. But obviously, I was off sick, so I've really had to learn that lesson in real time. <laughs> But yeah. You know what, though? We've never had
0: the control that we thought we did.
1: Oh, ever. Yeah, I know.
0: It was just... We were just lulled into a little false sense of security because every day, despite the plan that you have, it may never go that way. And I think COVID has made us go, all right, we probably need to work on, as you say, those really stable relationships. We need to work on our resilience, our adaptability. Mm. And we need to just be like, oh, well, if we're, you know, moved off course for a little while, at least we've got those skills that allow us to deal better because I think that, yeah. we were never in control
1: <laughs> at least not the way we thought we were you just said something that just resonated with me that ah oh, well thing is such a commonly used idiom in my family we're very oh well you know like what are you gonna do about it you know oh well <laughs> move along next thing let's keep going <laughs> yeah. don't talk too much yeah oh well
0: I, think I feel like that's my mantra at the moment oh well yeah in you know,
1: mine too <laughs> oh well yeah <laughs> <laughs> it happens yeah
0: so actually speaking of that i think as a society we struggle a bit with resilience and being resilient how do you think you have developed that or do you think you have developed
1: it yeah i actually think that's something that i've been lucky to have in my life i think from a pretty young age my mom said don't let the um the, the tough things in life define you and so I think every time I have a setback, I am really sure not to hold on to it or cling on to it or use it as an excuse to kind of just give in and have a sulk about it. I mean, like it's important to mourn losses and, and face setbacks and things like that. But I think I'm I'm very much like, oh, OK, oh, well. <laughs> on to the next thing. And, you know, even lost my job, felt like there weren't really many jobs in fashion. And so I just had to go with a new course and and things like that. And I think, I think maybe that's just something that we're going to have to learn as a society, but I don't, I don't really know. I don't know how that can really be communicated in a larger sense, but yeah, I was just lucky that um, that was something that I was kind of taught at a young age. So it's not really something I had to worry about learning the hard way as I got older.
0: That's good. uh So, what are the positives and potential hardships you feel females are facing in society, and how do you think it is? Or how have you experienced
1: being a female in society? This is, I, I'm, I have so much to say on this topic, and I'm so nervous about having it turn into a rant. So, if I start like pointing my finger, or you, you could just let me know. But <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think, um like I've done a lot of research on this as well. Probably a positive with being a woman now is that I think um, we fell into this really weird thought cycle with second wave feminism where we thought that um, if you bolstered white women, you know, it would kind of just carry along all the other women with them as they kind of rose. But, that didn't happen. And so now we've learned that we need to give voices to the most marginalized women, you know, like the women of color, the differently abled women, the queer women, et cetera. And so I think that's really fantastic. And so I think it's a really, a real positive that, you know, all women are kind of included in female empowerment in a way that they weren't. But as I said, like, I'm a, I'm a white woman of privilege. I can't really speak to their experience. And I, I hope that that is the case. They do feel heard and that their voices are encouraged, but I think we still have a long way to go in general. I think a lot of people tend to not want to give much more time or thought or space to the whole feminism thing, because we've come so far, you know, what more do we want kind of attitude. But when you really look at in work, the workplace, I don't know, I, I even when I talk to my like beloved male friends, they kind of are of this mind that because companies now have quotas to hire women, that they problem solved, fixed. And you know, you, there are even some men who think that that's kind of defying a meritocracy, but you know what they don't understand is without equal opportunity, meritocracy doesn't exist anyway. For example, I did my thesis on um, how the upper echelon of the fashion industry is completely dominated by men, and when you look at the fact yeah. that that's even an industry that's buoyed by female currency, and all the women are on like the tiers, and these men are just getting there really quick. Like that's just an example of the fact that we still have so far to go, and we are getting there but it's like problem problems are fixed so i think there are still a lot of hardships for women even in the home i think a lot of the cleaning housework cooking you know um, responsibilities fall to women still and i'll probably have men listening be like that's not true i do heaps and there'll be women nodding along i think there are some men or hopefully a lot of men out there who do a lot of work like my sister's partner he does all the cooking she does all the cleaning that's a pretty healthy split they're doing really well um (laughs) But I think there are a lot of cases where like, oh, my partner cooks two nights a week. Woohoo, what a hero, you know? So I think hopefully as the generations go on, that becomes less of a stigma that, oh, women are just better at that kind of work. Because just- right now we're going out, we're working full time, we're studying just as much. And then we have to come home and like cook and clean and t- or take care of the kids or whatever. And I think that's just really unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Positive note, least women have like a real community.
0: Yeah, I think women are conditioned to feel yeah. as though we need to be the caregivers. I see that very clearly. And I do feel that naturally women tend to be a little bit more empathetic. I think I see that in myself and I see that in a lot of the women that are in my community and I think that we like being those people. I like to take care. I like to be understanding and I think that that's not such a bad thing but it's the idea that those those things that make yeah. us feel good are then Leveraged in some way or taken advantage in some way. Yeah, I think that's I, that's the problem, and I think that those things need to start early too. I think boys, young boys, need to be a part of doing those things to support the family. It can't just be come on to the to the little girl or. It needs to be the father's showing. Yeah,
1: I think that even if the kids have to do the chores as well, they might still be seeing their mum doing all of the work. So they kind of, and I think it's a really unconscious thing. I don't think there are any guys now sitting back going like, oh, that's a woman's job. I think. One, they don't understand how much time yeah. goes into housework. So they think they do a little bit and they think that that's just equal. It's not. They're not looking at all the hours that are going into, you know, the shopping and the cooking and all of that. But, you know, I think it's it's the way that the society has been constructed in a way as well, where like language of love, a woman's language of love is, as you said, being the caregiver and um, yeah. a man's language of love is providing for the family. And so there's so much stress and anxiety and pressure on both parts to fulfill certain roles. Yes. And that just kind of needs to be dismantled a little bit.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's funny for me because I don't see it as much because I went into the teaching profession, which is what, 98% female? No, it's not quite, but there's a lot of women in teaching and so I've never seen that or felt that because I've always felt incredibly encouraged and respected in my field. But I know that that's not a global feeling for women. I know that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and that's so fantastic to feel that way. And, I, look, I think I, I have these discussions with uh, guys a bit and it gets a bit heated. But, you know, even in some companies, like, there are some really – good progressive companies and, you know, their CEO might be a woman or their boss might be a woman or something and they go, but the company I'm looking at, it's fine. So every company must be the same, but it's just, there's so much prejudice still going into hiring decisions in, you know, probably less scrutinized companies. So I think it's something that people need to be aware of, even if it's not happening directly in front of them, you know, it's it's still definitely happening or the women aren't being paid as much or what have you.
0: Yeah. The important thing I think is to have honest conversations and to not be so triggered by things that are truthful to people, you know. Like if yeah. this is a situation that is really happening to somebody, don't dismiss it. That is their truth. That's going on. And I think that just because you don't see it doesn't mean you can't be part of the change. I think you can. I think everybody's part of the change if they want to be
1: yeah it's a very touchy subject I think people get very defensive because bringing it up especially if you're trying to talk to your partner or a male friend they feel like it's a direct attack on them and I mean everyone has to deal with this. It's kind of like um I'm just about to read this book White Fragility and that's the whole concept yeah. of the fact that white people cry white tears at the you know just the indication that they might be racist and really it's not for them to be upset, you know it's for them to listen and take it in and, and not get Absolutely. so defensive. So I think it's a lesson that can be learned in lots of different um areas of life.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, what you're right. Like I if someone was to call me racist, that would be very difficult for me to to take, right? Because I don't mm. believe myself to be, but there is an element of my life that is blind, a
1: hundred percent, and yeah, and I think just to acknowledge that blindness is the first step, and it's kind of, I mean, that must be how men sometimes feel if we talk about feminism. Maybe they feel like they're being attacked, or that that we're suggesting that they're sexist or, or something. But yeah, you know, I, I guess really all. Old- we want is to be heard and for them to listen so there you go
0: absolutely I'm going to finish up with the last question sure cool (laughs) what are some of the greatest lessons you have ever learned it does not have to be academic
1: just in your life some of the greatest lessons Mm, I mean Life is just one big lesson, really. <laughs> but, um, I mean, there are lots of lessons. I mean, there are trivial lessons, like never eat at a restaurant with um pictures of the food on the menu. But then there are bigger lessons. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think on that topic that we were just talking about, I, I think but maybe I'm just saying this because it's what's at the forefront of my mind right now is that um, it's kind of like what you said about you know, the power that we have as consumers and the power that we have as individuals. Um, we have so much more power than we think we do and life is not nearly as predetermined as... We believe we have so much agency for change. And so I, I think really just accepting that we don't have all the answers and it's sometimes it's so important to sit back, listen, learn, and then act and do something. And I hope yeah. that these are lessons that stick with me for the rest of my life because I think they could not be more important because they can be helpful to so many people around you. And I think, yeah, that's, uh, it's a, it's one good thing that's come out of this year that there's been a lot of time for self-reflection and self-discovery and listening to other people around the world and just being a little bit more a work into that. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining me Bailey. I've loved our discussion. You've made me think so much and I really really oh, appreciate yes. that.
1: They've been such they've been such good questions. So thank you so much for having me.